Good morning and welcome to Bankery Christian Fellowship Church, uh, especially if, you're, if uh, this is your first time here or for those watching online, very warm welcome to you. We're so glad you've come to be with us. Uh, we have come to church this morning and the first question of the day to you is, what does that word church mean? What does it mean? Well, <laughs> oh, you thought it was a rhetorical question. What does that word church mean? Well, the way we use the word church, we usually mean a building, don't we? We speak about that church on the corner. Or sometimes the word church is used to describe every Christian in the world who has ever been, actually, all Christians in heaven and on earth together, they make up the church. But do you know what the word itself means? I mean, if you were to think of another word that means the same thing, you would come up with a word like gathering or assembly. The original word where our word church comes from means gathering. And so what we are doing today is really important for the church because this is the church doing what it says on the tin. We're gathering. We are a gathering of God's people. That's why over these last couple of years we weren't really content to, to spend longer than we needed to watching church services on our computer screens or on our TVs, because the church is the gathering of God's people. And we're not just gathered together for the sake of it. We've gathered here together because we have come to understand who God is, what He has done, and we want to worship Him. And so we praise God because He is the, the creator, the sustainer, and the Redeemer of the world, and we want to sing His praise. Listen to these words from Psalm 66. Shout for joy to God all the earth. Sing the glory of His name. Give to Him glorious praise. Say to God, how awesome are your deeds. So great is your power that your enemies come cringing to you. All the earth worships you and sings praises to you. They sing praises to your name. Simply, this is what we must do when we know who God is. We have to worship. We have to worship. And what a privilege it is to come together on a Sunday morning with others who want to worship the living God. This is the word of the Lord. From Paphos, Paul and his companions sailed to Perga in Pamphylia, where John left them to return to Jerusalem. From Perga, they went to Pisidian Antioch. On the Sabbath, they entered the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the leaders of the synagogue sent word to them, saying, Brothers, if you have a word of exhortation for the people, please speak. Standing up, Paul motioned with his hand and said, Fellow Israelites and you Gentiles who worship God, 
Listen to me. The God of the people of Israel chose our ancestors. He made the people prosper during their stay in Egypt. With mighty power, he led them out of that country. For about 40 years, he endured their conduct in the wilderness. And he overthrew seven nations in Canaan, giving their land to his people as their inheritance. All this took about 450 years. After this, God gave them judges until the time of Samuel the prophet. Then the people asked for a king, and he gave them Saul, son of Kish, of the tribe of Benjamin, who ruled 40 years. After removing Saul, he made David their king. God testified concerning him, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. From this man's descendants, God has brought us to Israel, the Savior Jesus, as he promised. Before the coming of Jesus, John preached repentance and baptism to all the people of Israel. As John was completing his work, he said, Who do you suppose I am? I am not the one you are looking for, but there is one coming after me whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. Fellow children of Abraham and you God-fearing Gentiles, it is to us that this message of salvation has been sent. The people of Jerusalem and their rulers did not recognize Jesus, yet in condemning him they fulfilled the words of the prophets that are read every Sabbath. Though they found no proper ground for a death sentence, they asked Pilate to have him executed. When they had carried out all that was written about him, they took him down from the cross and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead, and for many days he was seen by those who had traveled with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. They are now his witnesses to our people. We tell you the good news, what God promised our ancestors he has fulfilled for us, their children, by raising up Jesus. As it is written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I have become your father. God raised him from the dead so that he will never be subject to decay. As God has said, I will give you the holy and sure blessings promised to David. So it is also stated elsewhere, you will not let your holy one see decay. Now when David had served God's purpose in his own generation, he fell asleep. He was buried with his ancestors and his body decayed. But the one whom God raised from the dead did not see decay. Therefore, my friends, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is set free from every sin, a justification you are not able to obtain under the law of Moses. Take care that what the prophets have said does not happen to you. Look, you scoffers, wonder and perish, for I am going to do something in your days that you would never believe, even if someone told you. As Paul and Barnabas were leaving the synagogue, the people invited them to speak further about these things on the next Sabbath. When the congregation was dismissed, many of the Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who talked with them and urged them to continue in the grace of God. On the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. 
When the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy. They began to contradict what Paul was saying and heaped abuse on him. When Paul and Barnabas answered them boldly, we had to speak the word of God to you first, since you reject it and do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life. We now turn to the Gentiles, for this is what the Lord has commanded us. I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. When the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and honored the word of the Lord, and all who were appointed for eternal life believed. The word of the Lord spread to the whole region, but the Jewish leaders incited the God-fearing women of high standing and the leading men of the city. They stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from their region. So they shook the dust off their feet as a warning to them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, good morning again. Um, it's, it's great to be back with you again after a couple of weeks of absence. Um, appreciate your, your thoughts and your prayers in that time. Um, but it's, it's lovely to be able to, to come and to, to join together as we hear from God's word. Um, Thank you, Ustin, for reading that passage for us, a lengthy passage. Um, and I wonder, I wonder if, if you have ever planned to do something new and challenging and, and perhaps exciting, but have given up before you really got going. Have you ever set out on a, a hill walk or a, a climb or um, some arduous task and, and turned back? Or have you ever perhaps planned a, a daunting business venture that you, you never got off the ground? Or like me, tried to, to learn a musical instrument and gave up before you got past the basics? What is it that just so often causes us to, to give up on things, things that are often good and worthwhile things before we've really begun? Well, we could just say that we're lazy and in my case, at least, that is certainly partly true, but I think there is more to it than that. I think we make a calculation, an assessment of the likelihood of success. And if the chance of success is low, we give it up. And if our chance of success is zero in our assessment, we certainly give it up before we get going, and perhaps wisely so. We don't like to invest time energy, money, and emotion into things that have no chance of succeeding. And that's a fairly sensible approach. If something has zero chance of success, it is foolish to pursue it and very sensible to give it up. What happens when we apply this type of decision-making to the mission of the church? How do we calculate the chance of success of the mission of the church and make our decision on whether to, to step out, to step forward, or to give up. The mission of the church in many respects is utterly impossible. And, and we feel that very keenly often, don't we? The mission to, to take the message of salvation to a world that is either apathetic or actively hostile it seems like it's got such a low chance of success, bringing the message of salvation to a world that wants nothing to do with God and His gospel that we proclaim seems at times an impossible task. How do we not just give up? 
when we look at our chance of success. Well, Paul and his companions early on in their first missionary journey here face just such a situation, the temptation to give up. See, standing on the docks in Paphos with their ship ready to set sail to Perga in Pamphylia to go and bring the gospel abroad, one man falters. He gives up on the work. He gives up on his mission partners and friends. John, also called Mark, we see in verse 13, he turns around and he goes home back to Jerusalem. It's, it's put in a very understated way in our passage here, but John is giving up. There is not a, this isn't a pre-planned return to Jerusalem. This is made clearer when we look at the extra information in chapter 15 of Acts in verses 38 and 39. John retreats when he should have pressed on. And it causes great distress and division among the team. John, who had been such a help with preaching the gospel in Salamis earlier in this chapter, in verse 5, now abandons his post. What influenced his decision? Perhaps the mission seemed too difficult. Perhaps the cost was too great. Perhaps he lost courage for the journey ahead. And perhaps it seemed to him that this mission was just impossible. We don't know exactly what went through John's head, but we do know he went home when he should have gone on ahead with Paul, Barnabas, and the others. And so Paul and the rest set sail to Perga without him. I'm sure the loss of someone like John would have affected team morale greatly. It would have been a discouraging blow. It caused disagreements about how to respond and how to treat this gifted young man. And the team do keep going though. They travel to Perga and then on to Antioch and Pisidia. And it's the Sabbath we see in verse 14. And so, as was their custom, they go to the synagogue. But I wonder, as they sat there listening to the law and the prophets being read, how many of them might have been wondering if they'd made a mistake on this journey. I wonder if their confidence for the mission might have been wavering. Did the loss of John perhaps sow seeds of doubt? Could they really take the message of salvation to these people, or was this mission doomed to fail? What would happen to our confidence here in Bankery to do the work of the gospel if something similar happened to us? What if we were to lose a gifted ministry leader? What if we were to lose someone who was uniquely gifted, if they were to turn around and to give it up? This could happen for any number of reasons. What would we do? Where would our confidence for continuing the work of the gospel come from? Now, I don't think this is about to happen to us here, but it's not a scenario that's foreign to many of us, unfortunately. But this is the question that in large part forms the background for Paul's sermon that we read in verses 16 to 41 of our passage. And Paul's sermon points us to where our confidence should lie. In, in verse 16, after the reading of the law and the prophets, Paul is asked by the ruler of the synagogue to speak to the people present, to give a word of encouragement to the worshipers. What would Paul say? 
What would the encouragement be to those in the congregation and also to his own team there, perhaps wondering if they should press on in the mission or give up and go home? How would he rally them and keep them on in this mission? What would you say? Well, I think the main message of Paul's sermon here can be summarized by saying this. The mission of salvation may seem impossible but salvation is in fact mission unstoppable. So this is the title for our message here this morning, Salvation, Mission Unstoppable. And Paul gives plenty of evidence for this. He starts with a a brief history of Israel where salvation is foretold. And he goes right through the birth, death, and resurrection of Jesus where salvation is fulfilled. And following this powerful sermon, we see the results. Salvation is foretold. It goes to the ends of the earth, and people are saved even in the midst of opposition and oppression. Salvation is not mission impossible, but mission unstoppable. So let's look at Paul's sermon and the response to it as we see salvation, mission unstoppable in salvation foretold, salvation fulfilled, and then salvation foretold. Paul opens his sermon at the synagogue by addressing those present in verse 16. Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. He's speaking to both the Jews and God-fearing Gentiles, and he points to how the the, the history of Israel applies to them. He wants to show how this history makes sense of who they are and where they are now in God's plans. By tracing the story of salvation through Israel's national history, Paul wants to show them that the promise of a savior to them, God's salvation mission, is impossible because of who they are, but it is unstoppable because of who God is and what he does. God's salvation mission is impossible if it relies on them. It's impossible because of who they are, but it is unstoppable because of who God is and what he does. So we see in verses 16 to 25, Paul emphasizes the saving action of God throughout the history of Israel. Paul says, it was God who chose our fathers in verse 17. It was God who caused them to multiply in Egypt. It was God who rescued them from slavery in Egypt. It was God who with great patience and endurance put up with the people's grumbling in the wilderness for 40 years. It was God who gave them the land he had promised. It was God who gave them judges to rule over them, and it was God who gave them a king when they wanted to be just like the other nations. And it was God who would give them a king after his own heart, King David. God had done it all. He was in control. He chose his people. He provided for his people. He made promises to his people, and he kept those promises, even when everything in the history of these people would lead you to think it would be impossible for God to bring anything good out of them at all. But then we read in verse 23, the crowning act of it all, from this disobedient, grumbling, ungrateful, rebellious people, God brought a savior. From the family line of King David, just as he promised. In the history of Israel, right up to John the Baptist, we see salvation foretold. 
In the face of impossible odds, a Savior is promised, anticipated, and since God does it, salvation is mission unstoppable. The Savior, Jesus, comes. Paul here seems to say salvation is mission unstoppable, and we need only to look at the history of Israel to know that this is true. And for those of us here today who have personally known God's salvation, we can look to the history of our own lives too, can't we? We each have our own personal history of rebellion, of grumbling against God, of rejecting His rule in our lives. And if we're honest, we know that humanly speaking, it was impossible that we would ever become friends with God. If salvation depended on us, it would be impossible. But praise God, because salvation is God's work. He does it, and so salvation is mission unstoppable. So when you consider your, your work colleague who, who seems utterly opposed to the things of the gospel, who seems like they could not be further from God, and you couldn't think of a more unlikely person to accept your invitation to a service or to want to talk about Jesus, when you think it is impossible for this person to be saved, well, you're right. It is impossible, but you're also dead wrong because with God, nothing is impossible. Not one person is beyond the reach of God's unstoppable salvation plan. God, in His unstoppable work of salvation, does what is humanly impossible. Maybe you're sitting here this morning or watching online and you're not a Christian. Maybe though you have a, a deep sense of guilt about the things that you have said and done, or perhaps not done in the past. Maybe there are things you would be embarrassed even to admit to anyone. Maybe you doubt that it is possible for you to be forgiven for what you have done. Maybe getting yourself right with God just seems impossible. Well, again, you're right. It is impossible to be made right with God by your own efforts. By your own efforts, it is utterly impossible. But salvation is God's work. He can work His unstoppable salvation power to forgive you, even you, completely. Salvation is impossible if it rests on us, but salvation is mission unstoppable because it depends not on us, but on God. So, take heart, no matter what your past, or indeed your present, you are not beyond the reach of God, whose salvation plan is unstoppable. In the history of Israel, salvation is foretold. And while it may often have seemed an impossible thing, God, by His sovereignty, makes it an unstoppable promise that is realized in the coming of the Savior, Jesus Christ. And this brings us to the second part of Paul's sermon, which focuses on salvation fulfilled. In the second part of this sermon from verses 27 to 41, the emphasis turns from salvation foretold to salvation fulfilled, again in the face of what seem impossible odds. First, Paul shows us that salvation is mission unstoppable by turning his focus to the death of Jesus in verses 27 to 30. In these verses, we see 
that not even death itself could stop God's salvation plan. In fact, by killing Jesus, ignorant men, by their evil actions, were actually fulfilling the mission of the Savior that they aimed to thwart. Here we see that God's salvation mission appears impossible because of the actions of evil men, but God in His sovereignty enfolds these evil actions into His unchanging, unstoppable plan of salvation. In verse 27, Paul says these religious men did not see who Jesus really was. They did not understand God's salvation plan. They did not recognize Jesus as the Savior. They were ignorant to the words of the prophets about Him that they had read every single week, and yet in their ignorance, they actually fulfilled the words of the prophets concerning Jesus. They killed Jesus, but God used the actions of those who sought to oppose Him to bring about His own salvation plan. Over the actions of of these ignorant men, we could transpose the words of of Genesis 50-20, those words that were used of Joseph and the evil men who acted against him. The words that we know well that say, they meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. God used the evil of Joseph's brothers and turned it to good in his life. Although murderous, evil forces sought to stop God's salvation plan here, God could not be thwarted. His salvation mission is unstoppable. And the manner in which God works in salvation here in allowing the death of His Son at the hands of evil men, it disarms them and puts them to shame. Jesus, God the Son, is nailed to a cross And in this astonishing act, God absorbs in himself the punishment for our sin. He pays the legal debt that stands against us. He dies so that we might live. He fulfills salvation for us. Although those who killed Jesus thought they had won, they were in fact securing Jesus' victory over sin for all who would believe in him. In Colossians, Paul puts it like this, Colossians chapter 2, 13 to 15, you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven all our trespasses by canceling the record of death that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross, He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. As Jesus died, he not only fulfilled salvation's plan, but he used the evil actions of ignorant men for good. Their opposition of the Savior could not stop the mission of salvation. Salvation, even in the face of death, the death of the Savior was mission unstoppable. And we see that most clearly by what happens next. Jesus didn't stay dead. Verse 30, but God raised him. God raised him from the dead. Jesus did not stay in the grave to rot. God would not allow his Holy One to see decay. Paul reminds his hearers that all those words attributed to David are clearly and perfectly fulfilled in Jesus 
because David was buried and stayed in the grave. But death could not hold Jesus. He was victorious over death and the grave. He is alive. And Paul says that because this is so, because Jesus is the promised one, all the blessings and promises made to David are his. And through him, they are ours. Jesus reigns with eternal sovereign power as God's forever king. This Jesus, who is the fulfillment of God's salvation promises, now causes this unstoppable salvation message to be proclaimed. Paul says in verse 38, therefore, through this man, Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything that the law couldn't free you from. The law could never make us right with God. The law only ever heightened our need for, highlighted our need of a Savior who could fulfill the law fully on our behalf. The law shows our sin and brings only death. If salvation depended on the law, it would have been utterly impossible for us. But Paul shows us it is unstoppable because it depends on Jesus. The death of Christ alone brings forgiveness and life and salvation. This is the good news of God's unstoppable salvation plan. What an encouragement for Paul and his missionary team on the threshold of an uncertain missionary journey to take the message of salvation to unknown people in places that would be hostile and dangerous. They will face direct opposition and threat of death, but they are reminded here that the mission of God the mission of salvation is not stopped, not even by death. No forces of evil that they can come up against will prevent God's salvation mission from succeeding. Yes, they may suffer loss. They may even lose their own lives, but they can step forward instead of giving up because they know that the mission they are on is one that cannot and will not be stopped. It will ultimately be victorious, and they get to be involved, included in that glorious mission. You know, that's equally true for us here today in Bankery. Perhaps in a less dramatic way than they knew it, facing the threat of death. But nonetheless, we can take heart when we face ridicule, our opposition, when our reputation is smeared because we tell people about Jesus and the salvation he brings. We can keep on keeping on in this mission to seek and save the lost because we know that it is a mission that will ultimately be successful. When we are involved in this mission, we can know that we are on the winning side. I'm struck by what we've watched in the news recently and the speeches that have been given by President Zelensky to his troops he rouses them by, by telling them that this is a fight worth fighting because they are on the side of good. And it's a fight worth fighting because while they may suffer, they will be victorious. Now, Paul says something similar here. But how much more certain is our victory? And how much greater a good is it to be involved in God's unstoppable salvation mission? And now Paul, having presented this wonderful message of salvation fulfilled, having demonstrated that God's salvation mission 
is unstoppable, he strikes a note of, of warning. He ends his sermon with a call to take heed. He's not content for his hearers to merely hear that salvation is mission unstoppable. He wants them to be hit by it. And so, he warns them that while salvation, mission unstoppable, is wonderful news for those who believe and accept Jesus as their Savior, it is quite the opposite for those who would ignore such a great salvation message. In fact, we see him say that if they ignore this salvation message, just like the ignorant men who before them put Jesus to death, they would actually cause the words of the prophet who spoke to come true. And this time Paul quotes from the prophet of Habakkuk, who spoke of God's judgment against a disobedient and unbelieving people. There is salvation for those who believe in and accept God's offer of salvation, but for those who reject it, there is a fearful and just judgment because we cannot stand before a holy God without facing His wrath unless Jesus, the Savior, has already taken His wrath on Himself for us. This is a message for us. This is not something to to just quickly gloss over. The message of salvation is good news because of what it saves us to, a wonderful forever relationship with a loving, holy God who hates sin and evil in all its forms. But it's also good news because of what it saves us from, the just punishment that our sins deserve from a loving, holy, and just God who hates sin and evil. Only the salvation that God offers us through His Son can give us peace to come to God as fully acceptable, as a friend, blameless in His sight. This is not simply a message for information that Paul gives here. It's one that demands a response. How have you responded to this message? We see after Paul's sermon, two kinds of response. One, joyful acceptance, and two, bitter rejection, as the message of salvation is forth told. So Paul's sermon, it's centered around the evidence that God's salvation mission is unstoppable, and he showed this through salvation foretold and salvation fulfilled in the history of Israel and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And in what happens next, we see that this is not the end of the unstoppable mission. It continues in the response of the people who heard that message then, and it continues as we respond to that message here today. As Paul returns to his seat, the people beg him to come back next week so that they might hear more of what he was preaching. Paul and Barnabas do come back, and Luke, in verse 44, says with a a little hyperbole that the whole city showed up. And this tells us that there was a lot of Gentiles in that congregation that week, since most of the city would have been Gentiles. Clearly, this didn't go down well with everybody, though. Paul's warning to heed the message of salvation in verse 41 had fallen on some deaf ears. Many of the religious rulers were filled with jealousy because Paul and company had pulled such a big crowd. They, in fact, hated them and wanted them out. And just as with the ignorant men who previously rejected Jesus, God turns the evil actions of these men on their heads. They again fulfill what the prophets had said. By kicking Paul and Barnabas out of town, 
they ensure that the message of salvation goes to the ends of the earth, we read in verse 47. God's unstoppable salvation mission keeps on going, even in the face of opposition. Paul and Barnabas, they stood up and basically said, by your evil actions, you are fulfilling what the prophets foretold. You may kick us out of here, but the mission of salvation will not be stopped. It will go to the ends of the earth. In this act, we see salvation is now forth told. It is spread abroad to the Gentiles far and wide, and salvation is again proved to be mission unstoppable. And in verse 48, we see many believe and are saved. The way that, 48, that verse 48 is worded is, is interesting. The effect of the wording here is yet again to highlight the sovereignty, the control of God in the mission of salvation. No one ever saves themselves. Salvation is God's work. And here we read that as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. God knows who are His. His mission to them is unstoppable, but it is through the preaching of the message of salvation that they are saved, that they are reached. Through ordinary people telling other ordinary people about Jesus and His salvation, God's extraordinary and otherwise impossible work of salvation is made unstoppable. What an incredible mystery this is to us. And what great hope and confidence it gives us to go and tell the message of salvation far and wide, knowing that God's salvation plan, while to us it seems impossible, it's unstoppable. And again, this ought to give us confidence here when we look to our forth-telling of salvation, when we look to tell others about the message of salvation in Bankery. God has people here in this community that are His, people that will be saved by the preaching of His Word, perhaps through people hearing about Jesus over a cup of coffee at the, the ladies' afternoon tea that's being planned, perhaps hearing about Jesus and His salvation at the men's curry night, Perhaps it'll be children coming along to the holiday Bible club coming up. We do not know who it is that God has appointed for salvation, but He does. And in His sovereignty, He has told us to go and tell everyone about it. Some may respond with joy and accept it. Others may reject it. But all the same, God's salvation mission is mission unstoppable. Finally, just a brief note of, uh, look at uh, what Luke says at the end of this passage, and we see the reason why God's salvation mission is unstoppable as the message is taken global. It says, the disciples were filled with joy and the Holy Spirit in verse 52. As they stepped forward in God's mission of salvation, the Spirit enabled the unstoppable salvation mission that began before the dawn of time this salvation was foretold, it was fulfilled, and now it is foretold. What began in Acts continues today by the power of the same Holy Spirit who filled Paul and Barnabas. He fills us too. And because of that, salvation, mission unstoppable, remains unstoppable today. In many ways, just as we conclude, in many ways, the moment we face as a church is similar to the moment Paul and his companions faced at the start of their missionary journey. Taking their first steps on a great mission, there is trepidation, 
There's uncertainty. There's also hope and expectation. And if our confidence is not in the right place, we may easily be tempted to turn back from the mission and give up. When we as a church face out into the mission in front of us, our month of mission coming up this, this coming Easter, where does our confidence come from? Where does the confidence to step out into our community, to tell our neighbors and friends and colleagues about Jesus come from? Does our confidence come from the organization of the church, from the inspiration of gifted leaders, from clever strategies? I hope not. If our confidence comes from anything other than the knowledge that salvation is God's work and therefore salvation is mission unstoppable, then our confidence is misplaced. But when we know that the mission we are involved in is unstoppable, it gives us confidence to step out and to keep stepping out even if the going is tough and tomorrow is uncertain because we know that the ultimate success of God's mission is secure and we get to join in on that glorious and victorious mission. What is essential to keep the mission of God, the mission of salvation moving forward here in Bankery? How do we keep on going when we may be tempted to give up? What is it that we need? The answer is only this. We need God to act. We need God to save. This is all that is required to ensure the mission of God is unstoppable. God does not need us, but he gives us the greatest honor and privilege to be included in his mission. Remarkably, in his mission, he gives us a job to do, but we must not and cannot do it in our own strength. And that's why we as a church need to be committed to calling on God for help, to recognizing that he is all that we need, that he alone is the one who saves. So as Duncan mentioned earlier, we have a season of prayer and a day of fasting planned for this next couple of weeks. We plan to hold prayer meeting in the church building on Tuesdays, Wednesdays, and Thursday evenings these next couple of weeks. And a fast will be planned, a 24-hour fast period from Tuesday evening to Wednesday. And this in itself is simply stating to ourselves and God that we need him. We desire him more than the food on our plates. Please, if you are able, join us in this undertaking. If you have a question or would like to chat about anything further about this, myself or Duncan will be available after the service. As we close, let's just remember, we need God more than food. When it comes to the success of God's mission here in Bankery, we need God more than clever plans and strategies. We need God more than gifted leaders and talented individuals. And when we consider the mission that God has placed us on, although at times the odds of success seem vanishingly low, we can have confidence that in fact the success of God's mission is assured because it is his work, it is his mission, and he cannot be stopped. So let's step out on mission with him, with great confidence, knowing that God's salvation mission is unstoppable. Let me just pray. Father God, we, we thank you that you are the God who is in control, that salvation is your mission, and that you, by your power, have made it unstoppable. 
Lord, would you help us to have confidence in this because of who you are? And when we look at our own weaknesses, our own shortcomings, Lord, help us to, to take courage knowing that you, you overcome all of these weaknesses in us. You forgive all of our sins when we come to you and you can transform even us so that we can be useful in your mission. Lord, we pray that you would do that in us and through us for your glory. Amen. Thank you.